I'm Pastor Philip Jackson, and this is the Married Now What podcast. Our goal is to provide young couples with the resources they need to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. We are so glad that you're here. Let's get to the lesson. Whose voice can calm any wave, Jesus? I went to a funeral yesterday for a, a little sister of one of my childhood friends. She was 35, and... Um, she just dropped dead, had a little baby, and um, baby was about a year old, and she just just died. Super weird. But we were talking, Matt and I, me, Matt, Amelia, and I went to the funeral, and on the way back, we, we were talking about all of the stuff that we've been talking about this morning, whether it's loved ones making stupid choices or babies not being healthy or the threat of cancer or whatever that might be. And the if you ever met those old people that are like, I'm just waiting to see Jesus, you know? And when you're young, you don't really think about the consequence of sin on the world. You're just kind of like, oh, yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm a bad person. Jesus died for me, so there's that. But I'm kind of getting to the, the age now. I turned 38 on Tuesday where I'm attending more and more funerals of people that I actually know. And uh, it's weird. Like, I'm starting to realize, like, how just messed up the world is. And it just sucks. It just does suck. But, you know, the the older that you guys get and the, the longer that you go down the path of, of having your family and being married and all those things... Um, I'll encourage you that it doesn't get any better. It actually gets a lot worse because you start to realize how nasty things really are. But the thing that God has shown me over the last many, many years is how His Word is our lifeline. And there are many people, like sitting in that room yesterday at the funeral, there were many people who have had really, really hard lives because of decisions that they've made. And um, going back to your hometown and seeing, um, you know, haven't seen people in 20 years, and then you see them with all the ramifications of their life choices, um, it's pretty stark because you remember them being vibrant and healthy and the whole world ahead of them. And then to see them now, and it's like, wow, God has been really good to me. (laughs) Um, So... As you study His Word and as we give testimonies on Sunday mornings, know that the, like, this has to be the center point of everything that we do, not because God wants us to keep rules, but because this is the only way that we're going to make it. When family members make stupid decisions and they hurt you, it has to, you have to respond by knowing the Word and living it out. And that's what we've been studying the last several weeks. This whole series about Discipleship 101, looking through James, is how we practically live out our faith and it's not just an intellectual exercise. You know, practically, what does it look like? And His Word has to be the silver bullet for everything that we encounter because it gives us an answer for all these hard questions. So, um, finish this phrase for me. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, that is a really fun little poem, and it's completely wrong. Um so, 
Uh, take your Bibles, turn over to James chapter 3. We're going to do the first 12 verses of James chapter 3. And uh, James is, as we talked about before, New Testament wisdom literature. The way that um, things worked in the Old Testament, the way that Hebrews typically would write their, their uh, write scripture, is they would they would have one fundamental truth, which is you know basically talking about who God is, and they'd hold it up like a gem. And if you look at a diamond, for instance, from one direction, you see how the light hits it, and the colors are unique. And then you turn it just by a little bit, and you look at it again, and it looks completely different. You're still looking at the same thing, but it is you're seeing nuances of it. Okay, so what James is writing his letter in pretty much that same fashion. Okay, so he's talking about through the course of this whole book that essentially, if you are a child of God, that should lead to a changed life. That should lead to changed behaviors. That should change how you approach your trials, your struggles. Everything about you changes whenever you uh, become God's child. And so he's been looking at all these different ways that that's supposed to manifest itself. Last week we looked at how our faith, if it has, if our if our faith doesn't have works, then it's dead, right? We should be people of action. The idea is that okay, well, God's has animated me. Now I've gone from being a dead person to being an alive person. So by very nature, I should move, right? So the thing about a dead person, the difference between a dead person and a live person is that a live person actually, like their body functions. Same thing for us. So this morning we're going to look at the mouth and the tongue and what it means by the words that we say. Um, here's something I want you to consider, okay? God's Word says that essentially the words of our mouth are an amplification of the condition of our heart. Okay, so if I take a microphone and I was to speak into a microphone that was connected to an amplifier and a speaker, it takes whatever is put into the microphone and it magnifies it, right? In the same way, your tongue is, a, is an amplifier, is a microphone for your heart. Jesus said, it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. He says that... that what is naturally inside is going to naturally come out. It just is what it is. So one of the best measurements of our spiritual condition is to ask ourselves, how do I communicate with the people that are closest to me? Do I speak death or do I speak life? Right? And it's not just what you say, it's also how you say it. So let's, let's dig into this. We'll read the first five verses and then we'll go back and, and take it apart. Do not many of you become teachers, my brothers, uh, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble, stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the entire body as well. Now, if we put bits in the, into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are great, are so great and are driven by strong winds, they are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot wills. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold, how great a, f a forest uh, is set aflame by such a small fire. So he starts with an uncontrollable power, okay? An uncontrollable power of the tongue. We're called to be examples of the gospel. That's what he's been talking about for the last several paragraphs in his letter. We're supposed to be examples. We're supposed to be compelled to good works, and we're supposed to not elevate ourselves. Our job is to elevate Christ in every part of our life. We naturally, as God's children, take on his mannerisms, just like we've taken on the mannerisms of our parents or the people that have raised us. 
that we naturally do these things. We don't have to say, okay, I'm going to be godly today. The idea that, okay, God, I really need your peace today, so I'm just going to practice peace. That's not how the fruit of the Spirit works. In the same way, it would be ridiculous to walk up to an orange tree and hear the orange tree during the budding season grunting, boop, and the little you know flowers pop out, right? It just naturally happens. In the same way, we can't come to God and say, "God, I'm gonna, I'm, I am going to express peace today." It's not how it works because we have no capacity for that, right? Everything inside of us is broken. That means that we don't have the will or the inclination to naturally produce the fruit of the Spirit, which is why it's not called the fruit of Philip or Becca or Lindsay. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, whenever stress happens to us, whenever we encounter things in the world, we are um, we naturally produce this thing that doesn't fit. Years ago, um, I heard a story about uh, former President George W. Bush. He had an advisor named Karl Rove. Rove was his political strategist. He's the one that architected George W. Bush's uh, campaign to win the presidency. And George W. Bush had a special nickname for Karl Rove. Little Texas phrase, uh, he called him turd blossom. How many of you know what a turd blossom is? Nobody, okay? A turd blossom is a flower that springs from a cow patty. The, the most unlikely place, right? So you're, you're looking over the savanna and you see this, you know, cows have been there, obviously, they love their, the product of their lives behind. And to see a flower coming out of a cow patty is really odd. This is a picture of the fruit of the Spirit in the life of a Christian. That we are meant to bear fruit that stands in contrast to who we are. People look at us and they go, whoa, wait a second, that's weird. That's really weird. Our job is to let God take control. So we have to understand exactly what we bring to the table. So what he's talking about here is that the, the, the mouth is an uncontrollable power. Somebody who understands that um, if, if, um, if we're not careful, what we say is going to illustrate the actual the wickedness inside of us. And he starts off by saying, okay, so let's stop and remember. In seminary, they taught me that any question, the two proper answers are either Jesus or context. Okay, so what is he talking about in these first five verses? He says, um, your tongue is really important. It's going to cause you to stumble, et cetera, et cetera. But he's got this little verse in verse one where he says, don't many of you become teachers knowing that we will receive the stricter judgment? How does that work? Well, back up at the end of chapter two, he just said we should be people of action. We should be people that, that actually live out our faith, right? Well, what, what more practical way to live out your faith than to be a teacher, than to be a leader of God's people? You're, you're the person that does all the work, that does all the things. You're serving all the time. Okay, yeah. And the idea is, if I earn myself the spot of being important, being in charge, then that means that God's going to be more happy with me than everybody else. But James says, whoa, 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 hold on. That's not what I'm talking about. Understand some, some really important things. He says that, those who are in authority are going to be judged at a more stricter measurement than other people. Why is that? How do leaders in the church uh, express themselves? How has God gifted them? Through teaching, right? So as a pastor of, of this church and as a minister of the gospel, the things that I say, people take my words and my teaching and they, they shape their lives based on what I say. 
That's not a statement about me. It's a statement about the office that God's placed me in. So if I'm not a good steward of that influence, guess who I answer to? The Lord. Because not only has he given me authority, he's given me responsibility. I have accountability that comes with my role. So what James is saying here is don't just flippantly say, okay, I'm going to be in charge because I want to be in front of people and I want to teach and be important. He's saying you need to understand exactly what you're asking for. He he acknowledges that, he says, we all stumble in many ways. In other words, everybody stumbles in what they say. The most obvious is in our speech. Um, Here's an illustration. I think in building metaphors all the time because I'm a former builder, right? So you take the principle of a hammer. A hammer can create incredible works of craftsmanship, right? Because it drives nails, it puts things into place. It can be used for incredible good to build things. But in the same way, a hammer can be used to turn a mountain into dust. It can both build and it can destroy. Proverbs 18.21 says something simple. It says this. It says, um, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruit. In other words, if you understand this concept that what comes out of your mouth is going to either build or it's going to destroy, you do well. So he's saying we stumble. We're capable of both... Uh, building and destroying. And he says, if anyone stump, does not stumble uh, in what he says, he's a perfect man and able to bridle his entire body as well. In other words, achieving the highest discipline. There's only been one person who's ever been able to do this. So if you get frustrated with yourself and say, oh, I can't believe I talked to my wife that way again. I can't believe I talked to my husband. I snapped. I, I, there's, we, we get in those moments where we are, we're plagued by something else or we're irritated with the situation, not necessarily our spouse, and then we snap at them. How many of you do that? Yes. Okay. Should be everybody's hands in the air, right? Everybody has issues with their spouse. We all have those moments of weakness. But understand that what he's saying is that there's there's been only one person who's been able to perfectly do this. And what that implies is that um, we are never going to be perfect in this. In effect, what he's saying is if you've learned to control your mouth, you control you've learned to control your whole your whole person. Um one of the things that is challenging is that the, the tongue is the most powerful muscle in the body. It has the power to move nations to war or the power to resolve conflict. It's an incredible thing. And God has given human beings the unique ability to be able to do that. So he uses three analogies in this first couple of verses to describe the power of the tongue and the true power um, of such an insignificant thing, seemingly. Okay, the first two are about control, and the third is about the danger of how we use it. So the first two, he talks about the bridle or the bit in the horse's mouth. Well, if you've been around horses at all, uh, you, you would know that horses don't like enjoy putting a metal rod in their mouth, like right out of the gate. They have to be trained. First, they've got to be halter trained, and there's a process to teach them how to be comfort- comfortable with a bit in their mouths, right? to be constrained, to be under control. Same thing with saddle breaking a horse, right? So he's saying this little bitty instrument determines the direction of the horse. But think about this, that there's a process of teaching the horse how to be obedient. In the same way, a person has to train themselves to use their tongue intentionally. It takes time and practice to use it well in in a way that's responsible. The only way for us to control the words that come out of our mouths is to understand that this is a product of what's inside. Right? If you're not satisfied with how you communicate with your spouse or to your children or to others, it's not about your speech. It's about your heart. That's what he's saying here. 
It's about controlling the whole body. Um, and then he uses the analogy of a rudder on a ship and how the ship is moved wherever the pilot commands the ship to go. Um, if you've been on the on a lake or been out on a boat uh, at any with any experience, you know that that little bitty thing on the bottom of the boat can do some incredible things. And um, one of the things that I think is is really profound for us to understand is that our uh, our words reflect the allegiance of our heart, and it's going to ultimately determine our destination, right? So the old adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, right? I've realized over the course of my life that a more apt phrase is actually, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will haunt me forever. Because it doesn't matter who you are, if someone um, has attacked you verbally, you carry that with you. There are still things, even for me, that I heard as a child, memories that I have of moments of weakness from my, of my parents that on occasion they'll be brought to my mind really easily and immediately I'm seven years old again, you know, standing there ashamed in front of my family. Six and stones may break my bones, but words will haunt me forever. Jesus specifically calls out the Pharisees in, in Matthew chapter 12 and he he calls them out because he says that they, they've intentionally been binding people with theological shackles to divide them from God. And he calls them, he calls them a brood of vipers, evil or demonic. He says they are false teachers. They have elevated themselves to the place of Moses and put themselves in Moses' chair. And um, it's in the context of, of Matthew 12, 33 through 37 that he says that it's what's inside the person that's going to come out. So then he finishes with these two analogies by acknowledging uh, that even though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. In other words, um, you might think that the, that the tongue is not that significant, that it's just kind of you know there. It is, um, it is incredibly powerful. And he goes on to talk about this limitless power in verses, uh, the last part of verse 5 into verse 8. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. Okay, second part. Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the, the entire body and sets on fire the course of our existence and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So, this analogy of the tongue being a fire. I read one commentary who was talking about how fire is different than any other element. Because fire has the ability to rep, uh, re reproduce itself. As long as there's fuel and oxygen, it can continue to go. Um, the thing about water, water can't reproduce itself. Nobody pours a little bit of water out and it becomes a flood. right? But you can strike one match and you can set an entire forest on fire. We're seeing that right now in Maui. How almost all of the island has been covered in fire because power lines came down. All it takes is one little thing, one little word spoken in the small context of a conversation spreads to another person and then to another person and then to another person and it ends up setting the whole, the whole church on fire. He says that there's a difference between the product of God and the product of man. The product of man is that we can only produce unrighteousness and that 
uh, it sets on fire the course of our existence. The, the word that's translated as world here in Greek is the, world co- is the word cosmos. It's where we get our word cosmic, right, or universal. So he's saying that, that the, the tongue is an unexplorable, unexhaustible vastness of evil. There is no limit. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks about how what we fix our, our eyes on is either going to be, has the, have the potential for unlimited good or unlimited evil. There is no limit to what your words can do to a person, either to build them up or to tear them down. Just like a campfire can produce a life-saving heat for those who are trying to survive the elements, a forest fire can destroy everything that's in its path. And the difference between, between the two is control. It's about intention, right? Whenever you go camping, uh, you, you build a fire ring. You try to protect that fire from the, the tinder that's around it so that it doesn't spread outside of its boundaries. In the same way, whenever we are thinking about our lives and the decisions that we make, how we, the culture of our homes, we have to be intentional about building boundaries around what we say. In our family, we have some rules. We don't talk in absolutes. We don't use the words always. We don't use the word never. You always do this. You always leave your clothes lying around the room and never pick them up. You always do this. You always neglect to do the dishes. You never get up in time to read your Bible. Always, never, always, never, always, never. What that implies is that there is, there is no positivity whatsoever in my partner. The second thing is we, we have made a commitment. We never joke about. We never claim it. We never, we never use it as a threat. We never use the D word, divorce. It's not an option. It is just not a reality of who we are as people. Like, we love each other, but we may not like each other all the time. But those things are off the table. So we don't, we don't joke about those things because we need to put boundaries. He says that, um, that it's restless. The restless, the, so this word is interesting. The only other word, time that this word is used is in James chapter 1, verse 8, where he talks about being a double-minded person. In other words, this unlimited power of destruction is the product of a double-minded person. Now, if you remember back from chapter 1, the double-minded person is one who prays that God would provide wisdom and help, but then totally ignores it and does their own thing. So, think about this question. In in the course of your relationship with each other and in in your relationship with other people, if you have a sharpness to your tongue, to your words and how you talk to your, talk to your spouse, if you, have a, um, if you have a belligerent attitude towards your spouse, chances are you're being double-minded. Chances are you're playing the Jesus card and you're just kind of being the good Christian person and you're like, oh yeah, God's good, all the stuff, the Bible's true, all, that, all those things. But when it actually comes down to the brass tacks of living out your faith in your relationship with your spouse... It's not there. There's no, there's no works with your faith. You're just acknowledging truth. And so as a result, you become being a double-minded person who's unstable, back and forth, back and forth. There's this concept of being a, heart, a person with a heart at peace or a heart at war. A person whose heart, at peace, whose heart is at peace is someone who has their confidence in Christ, has their confidence knowing that God is in control and I'm living my life according to his word. He is determining what I do with my life. So I'm confident. So if things bump up against me, I have peace. But a person whose heart is at war is innately insecure. They're double-minded. So when challenges come, when disruptions come, whenever things don't turn out the way that I want them to, I hit the ceiling. And I am uncontrollable. The idea is that I am reflecting the internal conduct of my heart, the condition of my heart. 
So there's two, op two observations about the power of the tongue. First is with leadership. One of the aspects of bad leadership is a flippant or deceptive use of words to manipulate other people, to use this power of the tongue for evil ways. The second is about control. James says that men have dominion to tame anything in nature, but nobody can tame the tongue. The idea is we can, we can put bridles on horses' mouths, we can, we can control these, these large beasts and train them to do incredible things, but nobody can control their own tongue. And this ties back to what he said in chapter 1 about being slow to speak and slow to anger, but quick to listen. You see, in our base nature, supernatural transformation only comes through pursuing Christ. We are only going to change our, our language if we change our hearts. And that's through submission to who God has called us to be. We've been corrupted and we're conformed to this world. He says that our tongue is full of deadly poison. That means that it's only through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit that we begin to see life come out of our words. Okay, lastly, in these last three verses, we see a transparent power. A transparent power, verses 9 through 12. He says, With it we bless, talking about the tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a fountain pour forth from the same opening fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. He says, your hypocrisy is poisonous and it's sinful. You realize that you 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 come and you you say that you're godly. You you come to church and you do all the god stuff and you check all the boxes, but inside, what's coming out doesn't confirm what you're saying that you are. He says um, he he must have heard people giving reports about this kind of double-minded speaking because he uh, he uses this this analogy that from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. There's a theory that came. That one of one of Einstein's theory was uh, theories was that um, during his life, the smallest element, the smallest piece of a of an element they could find was um, electrons and protons. Okay. Well, now since since Einstein has passed away, we've realized that there's even more um, elements or parts of a of an atom. So there's they're called quarks, and the the smaller that you get, scientists are realizing that everything is simply a vibration of energy. Everything. All created matter is simply energy in its most basic form. Think about this. How did God create matter? What was that process? What did he do? He spoke. Okay. Speaking is a vibration of sound. They say that all sound... Every vibration that's ever been created or been, been initiated, it, it, never, it never goes away. It's always bouncing somewhere, even though we don't, can't really hear it or can't pick it up. If we have the right equipment, we can actually find things. That means that everything that's been spoken in all creation still exists, even today. Think about the realities of, of our lives, okay? Why is it that we can go to any people group in any part of the world and music is a reality? Why is it that I, when I'm watching a comedy, the songs that are playing make me laugh when I'm watching the video? But if I watch the exact same video and it's dramatic music playing, I begin to be emotional, right? The, the music that we listen to affects us, right? Because at our very base nature, some people believe, I believe, that 
we are actually still vibrations of God's voice. So that whenever we feel sound, it affects us and it change, it affects us on a molecular level. In the same way, human beings are different than any other creature because we have the incredible ability to speak. No other creature can do that. To speak and to communicate. That means that we, bearing God's image, have the ability to either speak life or speak death. We're different than anything else. That means that we have the conscious decision, are we going to speak something that is going to build others up or are we going to tear them down? Are we going to use our our mouths intentionally or are we going to just be flippant in what we use them for? It makes sense that Paul would say this, nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse jesting, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving, talking about the words that we say. The psalmist says this in, in Psalm 34, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. James says that to bless the Lord and to curse men is the height of arrogance. So the question is, would God use the same language about someone that we use? Does God talk to you the same way that you talk to your spouse? Or is he gentle and kind? Is he patient? Does he have self-control? You see how the fruits of the Spirit are the natural byproduct of godly living? But the natural byproduct of ungodly living, of human living, is contention and selfish ambition and being a, and having a heart that's at war. A person who is trusting in their own wisdom will be unstable, and their mouth is going to reflect that insecurity. And so that leads to our question for the car. Ask yourselves this and talk about this as a couple. What does your speech say about the condition of your soul? What does your speech say about the condition of your soul? The culture of your family. Are you the, are you the kind of a person that when things get tense, you explode? Or are you the type of person when things get tense that you actually become more controlled? Do you have a... Do you see the spiritual fruit of self-control in your conversation or do you have a heart that's at war? How you choose to build the culture of your home will dictate the kind of communication that you have. The question is, what are you going to amplify through your lips? Are you going to amplify a godly heart or are you going to amplify an ungodly heart? Proverbs 18.21 has become a memory verse for me, not because I set out to memorize it, but because it naturally came out as a part of raising our kids. Ava and I were going on a daddy-daughter donut date. We used to do those once a month. We'd go get donuts before school, talk, and then we'd, I'd drop her off. So on the way to, to get a donut one morning, I said, hey, she was probably 11, maybe, 11, 12. I said, hey, did you read your Bible this morning? No, no, I didn't. Okay, hey, pull, open up my Bible app. Let's just read the proverb of the day. Read it out loud while I'm driving. So she reads Proverbs 18, Proverbs 18 in the car, and 1821 stands out. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Wow, that's, that's pretty profound, right? What do you think that means? So we talk about it. Fast forward, we get home later in the day, and I hear her and her sister, you know, going at each other, like two angry cats in the pillowcase, right, in their room. So I... You know, I was like, oh, man, this, I, in my mind, like, Lord, this is like teed up. Perfect, right? So I walk in there. It's like total dad move. I just stand there in, this, in the doorway with my arms crossed like this, like leaning up against the doorpost, right? 
they have no idea I'm there. They're just arguing, you know, back and forth. And all of a sudden, they turn around, and I'm just standing there. And they're like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> you scared them to death. Right? All of a sudden, like, accountability, right? That's how I feel with Jesus sometimes. Um, and uh, I said, Ava, are you, what does Proverbs 18.21 say? Of course, she can't remember, right? She's a kid. The death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruit. He said, are you speaking life to your sister? Or are you speaking death to your sister? <laughs> she goes, I'm speaking death. <laughs> I said, you're right. I said, is there a better way that you can communicate with her? It's okay to be frustrated at the situation, but you can't take it out on her. Death and life from the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruit. You get to decide how sweet your conversation is with your spouse and with your kids. So understand that the condition of your heart is going to come out. Who carries the power? If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and is meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org. I've tried.